Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. For several decades before being transported to heaven, Coimbegins was widely known across the holiness movement as a wonderful evangelist. He was also a very gifted singer and songwriter. In 2003, he preached a camp meeting at God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he titled this sermon, Balance is the Key. I know you're going to enjoy this excellent sermon. Verses 7, 8, and 9. Verses 7, 8, and 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that you abound in this great grace also. And I, you notice I... I added a word there, but I'll, I'll try to explain that later. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Shall we pray? Now, Lord, you know how inadequate any preparations that we would make for this time would be without the help of the Holy Spirit of God. So we're asking you in Jesus' name to lay your hand upon the heart of your servant this morning that we can be that faithful ambassador of Christ's kingdom to this congregation. Touch us that we can touch them. Help us all together that together we may find a greater resonance with this grace and we may find ourselves more profitable to the kingdom of God. Have your blessed way in all that's done in the service follows. We'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. From this eighth chapter of 2 Corinthians, I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about this grace as a great, abundant Extended dimensions of grace is probably the way I want to approach this. Uh, when I say that, I'm looking at this word here, abound, and then the way the apostle expressed it here, that ye abound in this grace also. And that little word also in there sort of gives me a slight incentive at least to... Uh, talk about this extended uh, dimension of uh, divine grace. <laughs> I hope my premise is, uh, is uh, worthy, uh, and I don't have to do like one fellow that I heard about who had written into his sermon notes, he said the argument here is weak, 
yell louder. Well, <laughs> I hope I won't have to do that this morning to convince you what I'm trying to say. Here the apostle, when he talks about this abundant grace, first of all, he talks about grace to abound. Then he talks about grace to perform uh, and grace to keep our spiritual balance. Grace to abound in these uh, five areas, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, in diligence, uh, and in love. Now that gives me a very broad launching uh, platform here. Uh, and uh, I won't be able, of course, to cover all of these areas. But let's begin with the first one, grace to abound in faith. Faith, we read about it in the book of Hebrews, is substance and faith is evidence and faith is an incentive. Uh, it was for the elders uh, to obtain a good report. When we talk about this matter of abounding in faith as far as the substance of faith is concerned, if I understand that word substance, it has to do with some kind of a, a collective possession of things uh, which has to result uh, in those things being given to us or at least the possession of those things uh, not being from any earthly source as such, uh, but things that are ours as a result of this ability uh, to have confidence in the providence uh, of God for our life. Now, I know as somebody's already mentioned here, I'm talking to some young folks who are, are getting ready to uh, launch in that sense. They're getting ready to, uh, uh, to take the responsibility of a, a new uh, uh, area of adventure in their life. Nothing in the world that I know of that will strengthen your uh, confidence in God anymore is to have to use this muscle of faith on occasion uh, to uh, realize God's uh, uh, abundance uh, and his provision for your life. I, uh, I'm thinking of uh, my wife and I when we first got married. I, uh, my wife was not raised as, a, uh, uh, as uh, wealthy, and I'm, having, I'm being careful here in my choice of words because she's coming down to the camp meeting Saturday, so I want to be very careful how I refer to her here because on most occasions when I say anything about my wife or use an illustration about my wife, the first thing happens when she gets on the grounds and somebody goes right to her and tells her what I said. So uh, I want to be careful. But she was raised uh, in a situation where she didn't understand what it meant to have to really trust God for material substance of life. Uh, her father had a good job on the railroad. Her mother had a wonderful position with a printing company. And uh, so they had just about everything that they needed. But I told my little wife before I married her, I said, now, honey, there may be times when we may not have everything that we need and we may have to trust God for things. And she just smiled beautifully as she could and, and thought that was sort of amusing that I would talk that way. And I sensed that it wasn't getting through to her, so I approached it in a different fashion and made the words a little stronger and told her plain forward that uh, if you marry this holiness preacher, there are going to be times when you're not going to have everything you need. Uh, and again, she just smiled and, and accepted that, and uh, uh, nothing more was said. 
Well, we weren't married but six months, and we were living in the old home place up at Friendship, and uh, my prophecy uh, came true. She came to me, and she said, Coy, do you know that when I have put the evening meal on the table that that is just going to about exhaust all of our uh, supplies, and there won't be anything left for us to uh, uh, have for the next day? I said, well, I knew things were getting a little scarce, but I didn't know it really had gotten that scarce. Uh, and she looked at me in a woeful expression and said, well, what on earth are we going to do? I said, well, there's just only one thing in cases like this that you can do. Uh, I said, you have to go on your knees in prayer and trust God uh, to supply your need. And uh, she, again, never said a word, but accepted uh, that. And in a little while, I heard her back in the bedroom on her knees. And I want to tell you something. I listened in on her little prayer. I wanted to hear what she was going to say to the Lord. So I eavesdropped on her praying that morning. Uh, and I can tell you one thing. If I'd have been the Lord listening to a prayer like that, I'd have just given her the whole Siota County. I wouldn't have held anything back at all. I mean, that, that was the prettiest little prayer I think I ever heard in my life. Well, she came out in a little while and she seemed like she was confident and satisfied and and uh, we went about our daily activity. That afternoon, about 5 o'clock, there was a knock on the front door, and an uncle of mine who lived in Portsmouth was standing there, and uh, he had a big sack of groceries in one arm, and there was another basket of stuff at his feet, uh, and he said, Coy, I don't know if you need anything or not, but when I got up this morning, God put you on my heart. And he said, I couldn't get you off my mind all day, and the only thing I could think to do was to bring you these groceries, and he said, and give you this $10 and tell you that your aunt wants her kitchen painted tomorrow. If you'll come over, she'll give you $25 to paint the kitchen. Now, now he said, that's all I know what to do uh, about the way I felt about things this morning. Uh, well, he was as welcome as the flowers of May, of course, and we took the groceries in and put them on the table and put the money in my pocket and promised to be there in the morning to paint the kitchen. But I wish you could have seen the look on my wife's face as she turned to me and said, it really works, doesn't it? Yes, I said, it really works. In the time of need, faith is the substance of our hope and sometimes it is the evidence of, of things not seen. I wouldn't wish upon anyone here in this congregation this morning uh, the extraneous circumstances of having to be faced with poverty and nothing. I would not wish upon anyone <coughs> those uh, kind of conditions uh, that would put you right up against the wall and make you exercise that kind of faith. But I'll tell you something, if the occasion ever does come, you listen to what my wife said. It works by the grace of God. Uh, it works if we will trust him uh, in these uh, kind uh, of circumstances. I recall when our brother was talking here this morning, years ago when we were, my wife and I were across the hall, uh, Timken Hall Children's Hospital, and our son Scotty was lying in intensive care. He uh, had been diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor. And I know some of you have heard the story many times. But as we crossed the street that night and went to our quarters to lay our heads upon the pillow to try to get some rest, for we knew that sleep would never reach our eyes that night, 
We left intensive care. Our son's eyes were sunk in his head. He wasn't responding to any of the reflex checks. His vital signs were all out of order. And they were giving us absolutely no hope at all. So when we lay down to sleep that night or to rest our bodies the best we could, we reached across and joined our hands and put our son in God's hands and told the Lord that if heaven was a better place for him than earth and that was the only way that he could ever get any, uh, any release from his sufferings that we would uh, give him to God and uh, laid down to rest. It was about one o'clock in the morning when the telephone rang. I rushed down the hall to get the telephone because I figured the call might be for us. And on the other end of the line, the little nurse uh, was saying, is this Reverend McGinnis? Yes, I said it is. Now she said, sir, it's not bad news, but it's good news. She said, would you and your wife like to come across uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, street here to the intensive care of the hospital? Would you like to come over and join us? Said, We're having a celebration over here. Said, Scotty, your son is sitting up in bed eating a popsicle and singing, The Devil is a Sly Old Fox. Would you like to come over and join the celebration? Of course we wanted to join the celebration. We got over there as soon as we could, and everything was like they said. He looked like death, but he was much alive. We joined around his bed, nurses and interns and the people in the emergency area there that had come up to help. And they had, he had been in the hospital uh, 10 weeks, so they knew his song real well. And the nurses and the doctors joined us, and we all sang, He is able, he is able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. And we sang that all together, and our son pulled through his, uh, uh, through his session. He went to surgery in a few days. M.P. Sayers performed the surgery. He said he would only do it under one condition, he said, I want at least, at least six of your friends and yourself and your wife in the chapel of the hospital on your knees in prayer while I perform this surgery. It's the only hope we have. Eight hours later, he came and thanked us for our prayers and told us that our son had survived the operation. At that time, they didn't tell us that he would be blind for the rest of his life. We found that out later, but we were thankful to God that God had answered prayer. Down in Nashville, Tennessee, a little eight-year-old boy woke his mother up in the night crying. She went to his bedside to see what was wrong. And little Loy Mercimer said to his mama, he said, she said, honey, you're sick. No, mama, he said, I'm not sick. But he said, my friend Scotty's in the hospital in Columbus and he's sick and said, Jesus wants me to pray for him, Mama. And he said, I want to get out on my knees now and pray for my friend. And down on his knees, a little eight-year-old boy in Nashville, Tennessee, was praying at about the same time the miracle took place in intensive care. Up in Delaware, Ohio, dear sister, dear little sister Hessler, uh, and she was a faithful old saint of God, long since gone to heaven. But she said, the Lord woke me up at midnight, sir. And I didn't know if you had any trouble or not. But she said, God laid you on my heart. And I got up and prayed the rest of the night until the sun come up for you. Even though I didn't know what kind of trouble you were in. She said, the Lord witnessed to me that you needed my prayers. And so she said, that's exactly what I did. 
All I'm trying to say to you this morning, dear friends, is this. There is no way that we can live without this confidence born of, of our dependence upon the God's holy divine spirit. Uh, trust whatever you please, but I raise my hand and say with the poet this morning, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Uh, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the welling flood. When all around my soul gives way, when everything has fallen away, there isn't anything else to trust. There's no other place to go. There's no one else in whom I can defy. He then is all my hope and stay. And I'll stand here this morning on this wonderful confidence and this glorious premise that as long as I keep my faith and confidence in God, God will never, never let me down or never forsake me. He promised it in his word. And while I was walking the dark corners of the hospital that night, that old song came to me uh, uh, just as plain uh, and it simply said uh, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose uh, he will not desert to his foes uh, that soul though all hell uh, should endeavor to shake uh, he will never no never no never and I like to just keep singing no never no never no never and sing no never no never and he sing no never no never forsake and he never will forsake us uh, if we'll maintain our faith and confidence and trust in his glorious divine provision. Well, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. <laughs> For this great grace, this abounding grace, grace that establishes our faith, and it is by the knowledge of things that we know. When Paul wrote to Timothy, you remember, he said, Timothy, in the last days, perilous times shall come. He said, men are going to be treacherous in their character. They're going to be incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, without natural affection. Uh, he said, disobedient, uh, uh, unholy people. And uh, that's not just the order that he gave it to Timothy, but that's the particulars of it that I recall. He said in the last days, some treacherous times are going to come. Dangerous days are going to prevail. But oh, I like what he followed that up with. He said, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation our only premise that we can trust this morning is the confidence born of our faith in God and his word and its declaration where he said I will never forsake you and I'll go with you always regardless of what the conditions of the world might be he said, I will always be there for you, to use a modern expression. <laughs> well, he goes on to talk about this abounding grace, and he said, it is grace to help us to perform. Now, he said, it is grace that will help you to perform, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he said, uh, and uh, do better than last year. Uh, <laughs> You just, you kind of have to, uh, you know, weed your way through this and, and look at it for yourself. But that's what I saw as I read it. 
He said it was a grace to help you to perform better than last year. And he said, but don't just want to do it, do it. And then he said, and you'll have to just work with whatever you have to work with. Now I hope that when some of you young folks leave here and launch out there into your ministries, why, I just hope they give you the largest church in the conference with a big full-time salary, buy you a new car every year, pay half your social security and all your health insurance and just treat you like you was an angel come down from heaven. I hope that's the way things turn out for you. However, if I were you, I wouldn't expect it. I... I, I would expect maybe for it to be just a little bit under under that that level. I I, I never did take a church that was uh, <clears throat> that had already been accelerated to its highest uh, level of um, operation because I figured out a long time ago that things can de they can they can unaccelerate sometimes. I took a little church up here along the river in West Portsmouth. I had eight people besides my own family. That's not many. And I thought, well, we'll do something with it, surely. Uh, always have been able to. And, and uh, we'll do something here. But nothing happened. <laughs> Five years later, eh, it wasn't hardly just barely a little bit larger than it was when I first took the church. And I'm human. I get discouraged too sometimes, you know. And I did several times. As a matter of fact, I, about the last two years of that pastor, I resigned that church every Sunday night on the way home to my wife, I did. And she'd always say the same thing. Well, dear, if that's the way you feel about it, just go back Wednesday and turn in your resignation. By Wednesday, I'd pump my courage up enough to go back and have prayer meeting and maybe give it one more Sunday anyway and see what could happen. The only problem was nothing happened. And finally, this one Sunday morning, I just I just really did. I, I The old expression, you know, come to the end of your rope. Have you ever heard that? Well, <clears throat> if anybody ever comes to you and says... Uh, I'm giving you prospective young pastors some advice now, all right? If anybody comes to you and says, I have come to the end of my rope, for pity's sakes, don't say tie a knot in the end and hold on till help comes. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't answer anything. Never helped me any when my wife told me that. And I recall having told somebody else that, and it didn't help them either, so it's no help. But I put my head down on my little desk in my little study that morning and with real hot tears running out of my eyes, I said, Lord, I have come to the end of my rope here. I can't do this any longer. I cannot go out there and face that little congregation again with the prospect of an even smaller prayer meeting on a Wednesday night Lord, you've got to let me out of here. I can't stand this any longer. You please, Lord, you've got to let me quit. I have got to quit. You might think this is strange, but I'm just going to tell you what happened. You can just take it any way you like. I got a message in my heart that morning from heaven. 
and was almost like, how do you, how do we explain this, brother? The Lord talks to us. If he doesn't know, we're in bad shape. You know that. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit spoke to me that morning, and as sure as I'm speaking to you, he said, you go out there and you preach. I will put an angel in every empty seat in your congregation this morning. Now you go on out there and you preach. Hey, that'll sharpen you up, brethren, when you know you've got a congregation full of angels to preach to. <laughs> I preached that morning, and on the way home, my wife said to me, Why, Daddy? She said, You did wonderful this morning. She said, I don't ever recall hearing you preach any better than you preached this morning to that little crowd of people. She said, you just preached like the house was full. I said, the house was full. She looked at me as though to say, maybe you better resign the church. <laughs> but that got out some way. We had five new people that night. <laughs> and the thing began to grow, and it grew and grew, and we built a new church, and and uh, thank the Lord, the work is still going on up there in West Portsmouth. Uh, and, uh, uh, the new pastor, of course, he had to show off, and Sunday broke all my record attendance that I had while I was there, but that's all right. I'm not holding against it one bit. All I'm saying is this. This grace that God provides for us is grace to perform the work of the Lord. And what you are about to do and what we're trying to do here in this camp meeting is the most important thing that's going on on the face of this earth right now. It's more, it's greater than all the deliberations of the Congress and the Senate and every deliberate body of legislative gathering that meets anywhere in the world this morning uh, and of all the corporations and all of their, uh, <coughs> their uh, movements and their uh, uh, business and all the things that goes on with all of these great companies and all of the capital assets that goes along with it. None of that, my friends, is important as what's going on right here in this tabernacle this morning where God provides the grace to perform the responsibility of a Christian faith. Well, well, better get done here. This grace to keep our balance. I know right now that I'm in treacherous water. But I am going to try to be as faithful to this as I possibly can because across the years there has existed in the holiness movement some areas of imbalance. And uh, I, I fear almost to even, even touch the subject. I, I would do it, I'm sure, at the expense of being misunderstood by some. Because immediately when you start talking about trying to gain a balance that leaves us with all of the convictions that God has given us and all the positions that we have taken that are scriptural and divine and what God intends for his people in the area of lifestyle and such, well, I know I'm in dangerous territory. But I've been around... For a while now, I'm in my 48th year of ministry. And when I told you that I, I was called to preach when I was 16 years of age, 
When I was 17 years old, I was out holding revival meetings and going to high school at the same time. That's a little tough, attending a public high school and holding revival meetings at night and then come back the next morning and have the student body poke fun at you for what you'd been doing the night before when they'd been out to a party or a football game and, and I'd been to revival. But God helped me to get through it. But I've seen, I've seen the awful devastation that has been wrought in some folks' lives when they could not keep their balance in this area of representation of our glorious faith and confidence to the world. Somebody has said that life is a symphony. <laughs> well, I, I've noticed across the years there's been a little orchestra on both sides of the road as I've gone along. And I have tried to I've tried to appraise it like this. As long as I keep hearing music in both ears, I mean, there's this one on the right and there's one on the left. And as long as I keep hearing music in both ears, I'll figure I'm somewhere in the area of balance where I ought to be. But when the orchestra on the right is the only one you hear, you might want to realize that you've gone too far in the other direction and vice versa. <clears throat> Getting quiet, isn't it? <laughs> I was called to a camp meeting one time and uh, I the reason I got called to the camp meeting, the camp president came and my watch was in the shop, my wristwatch broken back in those days. Watches didn't have batteries in them. They had hairsprings. Now that's too old-fashioned for some of you, but some of you might remember hairsprings in your watch. <laughs> Mine had broken. It was in the shop, and I was having it fixed. And so, as a temporary alternative timepiece, I went to the drugstore, bought me one of those turnip watches. <clears throat> didn't want to spend money on a leather fob, so I tied it with a pair of a piece of a shoestring on my belt loop and dropped it into my hip pocket with my handkerchief. And that was my timepiece for that camp meeting until I got home, got my watch out of the shop. So when I get up to preach, and this gentleman sitting right on the front seat, and I reached and brought my turnip watch out on my shoestring and checked the time and put it back in my pocket, he made a resolution in his mind right there. There's the evangelist for my camp meeting, he said. So old-fashioned, he doesn't wear a wristwatch. And so he called me to his camp. The only problem was, when I got there, I got my Elgin out of the shop and had it back on my wrist. He came up and pulled my coat sleeve up and tapped on my watch and said, What is that? I said, It's my wristwatch. What is that doing on your arm? I said, It tells me what time it is. You didn't wear that when I called you for this camp meeting. You have compromised. Well, no. I said it was in the shop. I was getting it fixed. When I called you for this meeting, you wore your watch. It was in a pocket. And he said, and tied with a piece of brown shoestring. And you kept it in your hip pocket with your handkerchief. Boy, that's a lot of detail to remember for one surface. Yes, I said, that's true. 
He said, you take that thing off, you can't get in my pulpit. Oh, I said, well, I'll take it off if it offends you. But I said, I want you to understand that if anybody asks me, I'll tell them I wear a wristwatch. And I took it off just because you didn't want me to wear it while I was here on your campground. All right, he said. Too late to get somebody else. So they put me up in the cottage. And then I found out those people were so old-fashioned, they didn't believe in wearing deodorant. This is one of those old-fashioned 15-day camps. Starts on a Sunday, goes through Sunday, ends on Sunday. <laughs> 15 days on a campground is not a shower anywhere on the ground. You get your water from the well, and you wash in a little green granite pan on the shelf behind the necessary place. So... So I was out there with my green granite pan and I had performed my morning ablutions. I had finished shaving and reached into my little leather pack and got out a bottle of Old Spice and put it on. I didn't even know there was anybody around. I thought I was having private ablutions. But the green granite pans on a shelf out by right back in the whole field out there by so no way to, for it to be too awful private. But as I went around the corner, two old Zedekiahs leaned up against the building, waiting on their turn to the green granite pan. As I went by, one looked at the other, nodded, and said, mm, Old Spice. Thirteen days had gone by. My nerves were getting thin, I guess. So as I passed those two old Zedekiahs, I just leaned over and said, Mmm, be old. <laughs> they, <laughs> I maybe shouldn't go into too much description here. Somebody might figure this out. Somebody already did, as a matter of fact, <laughs> in one place. But they had names of prophets on the cottage, as you know. Moses lived on one side of me and Elijah on the other. My cottage didn't have any name on it. So just to make a little talk on the last Sunday afternoon as we were leaving, I said, well, I ought to be a better preacher coming uh, here and going. I said, I should be a better preacher than I was. I said, I've been living between Moses and Elijah for the last 15 days. And I said, I, that, that, I, said, I don't know who I am. I said, the, 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 the little... Sign fell off my cottage, and I don't know who I am. One of those old Zedekiahs popped up and said, Jonah, that's the name for that cottage, Jonah. Well, I don't know if it was or not, but I'm sure that's what they thought I was with a kid because I wore deodorant, <clears throat> shaved with old spice. Some people think in order to have old-time religion, if you look nice, succeed, and smell good, you've compromised. But that's not the case. Some people are so narrow between the eyes that if a fly would walk across the bridge of their nose, he'd have one foot in both eyes at the same time. And that isn't old-time religion. That's nonsense. But on the other hand, now just a minute. Don't leave yet. On the other hand, we have convictions and scriptural positions that are not marketable, not for sale, 
not to be compromised, not to be given up. And I can't help how modern the world gets, and I can't, can't help what they do. I keep, keep remembering what Paul said to Timothy, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. And it's that wisdom of salvation that's going to help us keep our balance and be sensible enough, but yet be sanctified enough and serve God efficiently enough. We can still reach a lost and dying world. I'm being awful, awful lengthy this morning. I know that. But down in the hills of West Virginia, I go for revival meeting. The man came into that revival. Well, I think I already told you the story about all six of the hard cases getting saved. One of those was a man over 70 years of age. He came down the last night of the meeting, stood in front of the altar and put his hands up like this. He said, you've been after me every time you've come to this church. He said, you preach right at me. And he said, you've looked at me when you give the invitation. He said, I know you've been after me. Well, he said, you got me. <laughs> he said, you got me. Well, I'm glad we did. The young man came into the meeting on the, under the influence of, of cocaine. But he came to the altar. And he prayed through. And he got saved. I don't know how much of that stuff in your veins will keep you from being totally unreasonable, but, but he got saved. Saved so well that he stood up at the altar and he said, confessed it, confessed his other, other things that he had done that was wrong, about his dealings and all of that. But he said, never again. I'll die, he said, before I'll ever touch that stuff again. And I thought he was going to do it during that meeting because he, he, he got awfully sick. It, it's hard to just drop that stuff, just cold turkey, you know. But he did it. Bless his heart. I never saw anybody shout like that before. He'd run down the aisle, jump as high as he could, reach up in the air like he was grabbing for something, and every time he'd get a hold of whatever it was he was reaching for, he let out a squall and down he would come and run a few more feet. And I never seen anybody get blessed like that. But he went home and told his little wife, he said, the Lord saved me. 11 o'clock at night, I think. <clears throat> got her up out of bed. Said, did she get excited? Oh yeah, she got excited. She got up and hit him right in the jaw and knocked him flat on the floor. But I believe the boy got saved because he said, well, while I'm down here on my knees here, I'll just pray for you. And he did. And she kicked him under the bed. She said, under no circumstances would she ever, never, ever, never, she said, I'll leave you if you don't stop this religion business. She said, I hate churches, I don't like preachers, and don't believe in God. But the last time I was there for a revival, who do you suppose was sitting right there in the seat with him? It's his wife. Now, she hasn't gotten saved yet. You pray for Mike. You don't know who Mike is. He came all the way up the IHC convention, Brother Sankey, when he heard I was going to preach up there. He came all the way out of West Virginia, brought old Brother Harold Will, paid Harold's expenses all the way up there. And uh, just for that one service on 
God saved that young man, and it was a miracle that God saved him. And I want to tell you something. In, in 49 years of serving the Lord Jesus Christ, I have every conviction that I had that I started with. Haven't sacrificed to one of my personal convictions. Haven't compromised in any area. But I tried when I started to make sure that all my positions were founded upon God's holy word. Balance is the secret, believe it or not. If you can pray and God can help you by his grace to keep your balance, you can still win the whole wide world for Jesus. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. That has been passed. I don't want to lose the fight.